take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 13. Before you sit down, we will read our scriptures. We are very, very grateful for all of our worship teams and our leaders who lead them. Wow, we're blessed here at Grace. If you're visiting, we do this every week. <laughs> this is how we sing. We love to proclaim our Savior. Um, it is such a joy. We invite you to come and be a part of this church and sing with us and worship with us. Our text is from Acts chapter 13, verse 26 through 39. Follow along as we read here. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophet, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilling these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And the very ones who are now his witnesses to these people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God was fulfilling his promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. And it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son today. I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. And therefore, he also said in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him... Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. You may be seated. Well, what a precious sermon we've heard from both our song as we've sang the sermons, the truths, and then here just reading the scriptures, Lord, we realize how... Often the resurrection is spoke of throughout the scriptures, Lord. Both Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament prophesying the resurrection. New Testament assuring us that it took place. So Lord, we thank you for beating death. Taking the sting out of death. And knowing that we who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will never see that second death. That eternal damnation. Because Jesus got out of that grave. So we are grateful, Lord. Here are our words today. We want to preach from your word, Lord. And, and we want it to be glorifying to you and edifying to us. And we want it to strengthen us, Lord. So when we leave Sunday school, Monday school is even stronger for you. Thank you for these folks here. Bless them for being here. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Easter is difficult for the world. It isn't hard to kind of look at what goes on around Easter time. I, you know, Christmas is a great time. We, we love Christmas, right? But you can turn on the TV and find, you know, country Christmas. And they sing great 
carols and great hymns of Jesus' birth. But not so around Easter. How are you going to sing of a, a Christ who died on a cross and was murdered? And how are you going to sing about a government that carried out a plot with Jews that wanted Christ dead? And how are you going to carry out songs that are going to sing of his resurrection if you don't believe it? It's difficult, isn't it? So Easter has become this holiday of, you know, eggs and bright colored ties your wife buys you. It's become a time to get together with family and eat a ham and look for some eggs. Because the world doesn't know what to do with Easter. We don't call it Easter break, we call it what? Spring break. And half the time the schools don't even line up to take the time off. See, Easter's difficult for the world. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, we killed him. We put him on the cross. Our sins put him there. And if he truly is who the scriptures say he is, he beat death. And that's really foreign to us. Because we've all buried people, haven't we? And they don't get out of tombs. And so it's hard for the world to put their mind and wrap their celebrations around this holiday. For us, as Pastor Ron said, it's our Super Bowl. He got out of that grave, that's why we're here today. If he didn't get out of that grave, that music was good. <laughs> got to wear my tie once a year. Can't wait for this guy to quit. Right? This is special to believers. This is our hope that God raised his son from the dead so that we too, if we see death in this life, death will not hold us because it could not hold Christ. Paul wrote about this difficulty the world has with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 and on says this, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know to, could not come to know God. So the world left in its own wisdom can't get their mind around Jesus Christ. So the Bible says. Doesn't make sense to them. But God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, there was about a hundred of us foolish people out on a hill today at the cross's house singing out our hearts out as we watched the sun come up. And I think some of their neighbors are, probably thought the crosses have completely lost it. But the verse goes on. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Jesus is not enough that you raise Lazarus from the dead, you feed thousands of people just breaking bread and fish. We need more. Sound true today of many religious people? Signs and wonders give us something. The Bible says they ask for signs. Greek search for wisdoms. Oh, hey, we're enlightened now. You just can't give us this Bible stuff. This doesn't work with us. But then he says this. But we preach Christ crucified. He's our hope. Somebody had to die for the wages of sin is death. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. Oh, the Jews think, oh, 
That's not our Messiah. You, you think that is the way I'm going to get to God? Look what all I have done. I have worn the right things. I have eaten the right things. I have said the right things. I have not done the wrong things. That's foolishness to put my faith in that one. To the Gentile world, they look at it and go, you want me to believe in a dead Jew 2,000 years ago? That he is my way to God? See, you see how the work of God must happen in our lives? See, the world thinks it's foolish. It doesn't make sense to them. But listen to the last verse here. But to those who are the called, there's, a, there's an article in there, meaning a definite group of people. But you and I, if you haven't picked that up yet. The called, both Jew and Greek, because God is collecting everybody from all the four winds right now. Christ is the power of God and he's the wisdom of God. People want to see power. Look at Jesus. He's the very power, the very right hand of God in all of his strength. I need wisdom. Look to Jesus. He is the wisest. He is the logos of God. He is the all-knowing one. And yet he humbled himself to come to this earth. The verses in this text are Paul defending the gospel. He is on his first missionary journey. He has ended up in a synagogue in Poseidon Antioch, a stronghold of Jews and Gentiles. And he has preached the history of their nation. This sermon is much like Peter's in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. It is much like Stephen's in Acts chapter 7. These men rehearse the kindness and goodness of God, what he has done to the nation of Israel. But they also, in both, all three of these sermons, rehearse the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. He has laid that out. Jesus was the promised one. He is the fulfillment of the scriptures, and yet you reject him. Paul has been telling them. And Paul's sermon here now turns to highlight proof of who Jesus is. He is the resurrected king. He is the resurrected Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And you can't in any way, absolutely no other way, ever get your sins forgiven except through him. Some will believe, like this morning, and some will hate him greater, like this morning, around the world. When you look at this text, one of the things that drew my attention to it and why I chose to preach it is that I see the resurrection all through this. Look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 33. He raised up Jesus. Verse 34. He raised him up from the dead. No longer to return to decay. Verse 37, but he whom God did, who God raised, did not undergo decay. Over and over in this text, we see the resurrection. And Paul wants them to believe. And you know this story. As Paul goes on, he ends up being arrested. The Jews' hatred to him is so great. The opposition is so great. They follow him from city to city, eventually get him, eventually have him arrested, and he's sent on to Rome, and he goes to trial. But in the end, when you read his trial, over and over he says, I am on trial because 
I believe that God fulfilled the promises of what the Jews were to believe, that Jesus was the Messiah and God raised him from the dead. So this is throughout this. Let me give you three thoughts this morning here as we look at this text. The blind and hard-hearted fulfilled fulfill the plan of God. The blind and hard-hearted fulfilled the plan of God. Look with me there at verse 26. There seems to be two groups he's speaking to. Brethren, because he is a Jew, Paul's a Jew, so he's speaking in, not in a brethren as believers, as he often says, but here speaking to his own people. It is like a missionary who has gone back to his own people. That's the way he's speaking. Brethren, sons of Abraham, and those of you who fear God. So there's Gentiles now. Remember now the church is starting to explode. Gentiles are hearing the gospel. The church is growing. There's interest from the Gentile world. All of the apostles have saw now that God is drawing in Gentiles. And so he's speaking to two groups, really, in a way, of these people. Romans chapter 1 Verse 16, what a wonderful verse says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we understand that, we know what that means, it's chronological. Galatians, Paul writes in Galatians that God preached the gospel to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. We see it all the way from chapter three. And so it goes to the Jew first chronologically, but now it has been opened to the Greeks. And so Paul's speaking to these people. Notice in verse 25 that Paul is equating the same gospel that John the Baptist pointed out to the people. Verse 25 is a reminder that John said, look, there is one coming greater than I am. They were amazed at John. No one had preached like John for a long time. In fact, there was 400 years of silence. God had not sent a prophet to the nation. And here comes John the Baptist. And they all think he's marvelous. And he said, look, I'm not even worthy to just get the strap off the sandal of the one who comes behind me. What a statement. And Paul says, that's the one we're speaking about. This is Jesus. Notice in, back in verse 26 that it says at the end of it, to us the message of the salvation has been sent. See, this is Christ. He is the Messiah and he is alone is the message of salvation. It's not through your heritage. It's not through your good works. It's not through what you do and don't do. There is salvation in Jesus alone. And Paul is gonna reiterate that till they cut his head off. <laughs> and they do eventually. He teaches that till his death. And we picked it up after it. And the church keeps teaching these truths. Notice in verse 27, it says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognize neither him, not, not only did they not see Jesus, nor the utterance of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilling the condemnation or the condemning of him. Verse 27 is a verse that Paul starts to say, look, you didn't see Jesus when he was here. You say, well, how is that possible? Most of the world doesn't see Jesus. Even today, with a full Bible, they didn't have this completed then. They have the Old Testament. New Testament's being written. Here, Paul reminds them that you didn't see him. And many people today, you share the good news of Jesus Christ and, hey, that's good for you. But hey, I'm, I'm okay, I don't need that. 
See, there is a blindness, there's a hard heart that lies with on men. Here particularly, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, look, he's come, he's, he's explaining the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul's going to prove that here just shortly. He has come to fulfill all that was written about him. This was a problem when Jesus was alive as well. John chapter 5 verse 39 says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you can find eternal life. But you're mistaken, these testify of me, Jesus said. So what that means is they looked at the scriptures and they go, okay, so we don't eat this and we don't hang out with that guy and um, we don't wear what he's wearing and we make a list. And then God comes back and we get in the kingdom and you don't. See, that's how they looked at the scriptures. And Jesus says, you're fools. You're studying the scriptures wrong. Your blindness has made you look to works when they are about me. They speak of me. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine says this. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the very power of God. Speaking about that he was the very power of God. See, those who don't believe the Bible will not believe in Jesus. You can believe him as a historical figure, but if you don't believe the Bible, you don't believe Jesus. That's how you know him. You believe him through the word of God. Another way you can say this is that if you're ignorant of the written word, you will be ignorant of the living word. And that was the problem, and Paul brings that out. Many people ignorant of the very living word because they were ignorant of the scriptures. Here at Grace, we love to preach and sing the scriptures because we believe they hold the answers for life. They give us what we need. Look at at the end of verse 27. It says that they were fulfilling the scriptures by rejecting Jesus as Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 15. I will just illustrate this. And it wasn't though that Jesus was just kind of tiptoeing around the subject. He was sharing with them who he was, but their hearts were hard. And that is, of course, our point is that there are hard hearts. And Paul is pointing this out. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. This doesn't help his cause in some ways, but he is pointing out, look, you have missed this. You hypocrites, verse 7, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. You go, wait a minute, wasn't Isaiah writing about Isaiah's time? Well, certainly. But there was future fulfillment in those words, even in the day of Jesus. This people honors me with their lips. See, they're religious. See, there's lots of religious people in the world. A lot of people. You talk, I mean, I think only somewhere around 3 to 7% is atheistic in America. That means 93% plus of Americans believe in God. And yet the Bible says few you follow me. And he says, look, they, they honor me with their lips, verse 8, but their hearts are far from me. If, you, if your heart is not with the Lord, you're not saved. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. And after Jesus had called the crowd to himself, he said, hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of his mouth that defiles the man. And then the disciples came up and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you said that statement? Yeah, that's why I said it. Because they think they're saved by what they don't eat or what they do eat. Works. Works. 
Verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Whoa, sovereignty of God right there. See, hey, look, I'm the plant. This is how the Pharisees looked at this. You follow me, you dress like me, eat like me, pray like me, walk like me, talk like me, you're getting in. Jesus says, if my father didn't plant you, you're coming out. Verse 14, let them alone. They are blind guides to the blind. And if blind man guides a blind man, what's going to happen to them? They're both going to the pit. Wow, that's a scary verse, isn't it? We understand that term pit. It's used as an illustration of somebody leading a blind man into a ditch. But it's deeper, I believe, is what the Lord is saying there. So, so here, as we turn back to our text, we begin to realize Paul is pointing out blindness. He's pointing out the problem with it. Notice that this is another fulfillment of the scriptures because he says he was despised and forsaken by men. Verse 28 says, after they had found no ground for putting him to death, what does that mean? No ground. He is what? He's innocent, blameless. And that was proven. They asked Pilate that he be executed. Pilate goes, I'm washing my hands of this thing, man. I find no fault in him. Three times he says that in the book of John. No fault, no fault, no fault. He's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. But look at the amazing words that go on with this. Verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written concerning him. Oh, hold on. Wait a minute. This was prophesied. This was prophesied that, that they would hate him without a cause. In essence, Paul's quoting Psalms 69.4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Jesus reiterates this truth, the same Psalm, John 15.25, but, they, but they have done, what they have done is to fulfill the word that was written of them in the law. They hated me without a cause. See, they're fulfilling. They're carrying out what was written about them. See, God knows all men's heart. If you're here today, he knows your heart. You need to hear that. He knows your heart. He knows whether it's clean or still stained with sin, if it's been washed by his son's blood or it's still condemned. He knows all things. And these verses are telling to that. There are so many prophecies of the crucifixion. I just want to give you some of them as we think about this condemning work that people did to him. Psalms 109 verse 25 says this, and I also have become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their heads. That's Matthew 27, 17, perfectly. They walked up and they wagged at him. The innocent one and the guilty, the sinners are up there pointing their finger and blaming Jesus. It was all prophesied. Psalms 22, 17, 11, I can count my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothes, they cast lots. That's exactly what they did, didn't they? He had a seamless gown that they took, and it was worth money, and change of clothing was expensive back then, and they took it, and they didn't want to divide it among the soldiers, so they cast lots for it. A thousand years before that, it's prophesied they would do that. Psalms 29, excuse me, 69, 21 they also gave me gall for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. Psalms 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David cries that out. Christ cries it out on the cross as he feels the weight of our sin and the separation of the Father, why he pays for that. Psalms 31.5, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalms 34.20, he keeps all my bones, not one of them are broken. You know that that's talking about, right? The soldiers came and it's getting to be dark and the Jews want them off the cross before sundown. They want them to die. So they come and they break the legs of the thieves next to him. But when they come to Christ, he was already dead. And they stuck a spear in his side and out came blood and water. Not one bone broken, written a thousand years before it. See, these are all these prophecies. This is why Paul says in verse 29, they carried out that what was written concerning him. They carried it out. I mean, there's so many illustrations of the cross. Uh, Just think of Numbers chapter 21 where they're being bit by serpents because they rejected God's word. And and God says, Moses, take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, put it on a staff, a cross-like probably thing, and set it there. And anybody who looks at it will will be saved. Christ equates that to himself in John chapter 3. He is the curse. The serpent was cursed in the garden, so he's cursed for us. And those who look to the cursed one hanging on a tree are saved. I mean, it's just countless passage after passage, all focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And that's why Paul says, look, all this was written concerning him. When that was all done, the end of verse 29, they took him down and they laid him in a tomb. And you go, well, don't you bury people? Do we have to have prophecy about that? Well, quite frankly, Typically, crucified victims, the, the history tells us they threw them into mass graves because of their lowest class of victims or, or, or criminals. But Isaiah 53 says this, his grave was assigned with the wicked. He hung by two thieves, yet was with a rich man in his death. Where did he get buried? Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a wealthy man who said, I'll take his body. And I'll put him in my own personal tomb where not one is ever laid before. All prophesied before the nation came under condemnation. Thousands of years ahead. So here we see the fulfillment and the hard-heartedness of man. Second thought this morning. God fulfilled his promise through the resurrection. Now, verse 29 ends a little sobering, right? They're carrying out all these things that the Bible said that they were going to do. And when it's done, they take his cold body off this cross. We talked about this Friday night. And I, I just imagine Joseph or Nicodemus pulling that, cro- that, that crown out of his head that was beat down into his head and throwing that thing aside and somehow getting his hands and feet off that because they were nailed to that cross and getting him off that. And, and they laid him in a tomb. And verse 29 is a little sobering, isn't it, when you look at it? But then look at verse 30. This is what we call an adversive conjunction, but. Hold the phone. Something's going to change here. God raised him from the dead. I love Paul's strong conjunctions like that. It gives you confidence. He says, look, that wasn't the end of the story. In fact, that was never going to be the end of the story. God raised him from the dead. Victory over death. Where is your sting? 
Oh, hell, where is your victory? We just sang this morning out of 1 Corinthians 15. Not here. Because he didn't stay dead. Paul opens the book of Romans this way. He says, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, who, Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Power of the resurrection. Power over death. You can go to funeral, funeral, funeral. I've done a lot of them, and not one of them has got out of that box. They just don't. I promise you, they don't. You, do you believe me? Yeah. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. We saw this morning the, wo- the women were on the way to the tomb, and they're fretting over how the stone's going to get rolled. It's heavy. It's in a track, probably tilt it down so it's easier to roll down, but almost impossible to roll up. And there, the angels that have removed it, their fears were relieved. The fretting that they had because Jesus was risen from the dead. And he takes away fear. And Paul reminds him, God raised him from the dead. Look at verse 31. For many days he appeared to those who had came up with him from Galilee and Jerusalem and the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. I don't have time, but you know the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel's laid out in the first four verses. Death, burial, and resurrection. Then he starts talking about the people that just saw Jesus. 500 people, witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Goes to the apostles. And then Paul finally says, and then to the least of the apostles, he appeared to me. The road to Damascus in the Arabian desert. Now look at verse 32 with me. And we preach to you some kind of decent news, right? That's not what it says, does it? We just don't preach news to you. Our news is just news, right? It's hard to find good news at six o'clock on the TV. This is good news. Ula Geleon is the wonderful word. We get the word gospel good news from. We preach the Ulan Geleon to you. The good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised Jesus from the dead. So now what Paul's going to do is he's going to show here that the promise of the resurrection was just as much prophesied as his death. And these promises reach all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And you can find them there where Adam and Eve sinned. And, and their sin is on them now, and now they're separated from the Father, but here comes the Lord. And he says, look, I will crush the head of the serpent. I will destroy the one who has the power of death, Hebrews chapter 2. Promise. It's a promise. He's going to do these things. Look at verse 33 through 37. Here are three of these massive prophecies from the Old Testament. He's trying to prove them. Remember, all they have is the Old Testament this time. He's trying to prove them that they've read the Bible wrong. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was going to suffer and die and that he was going to raise him from the dead. So now he's going to prove it. Look at this. Verse 33. End of the verse. As it is written in the second Psalm. That would be Psalm 2. You are my son, today I've begotten you. And you go, well, isn't that a Christmas verse? Well, we, we celebrate it at Christmas, but when you study that psalm, it is the unique one. The word begotten is a little tricky in our English. The Greek really has a stronger idea. This is my unique 
son. He is everything I am is the idea of that verse. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten one, John 1, 14. So here in Psalm, he says, this is my son. Now, there's no real definition that this is only held to his incarnation, where he takes on flesh and adds it to his deity, but it's probably just as much, this is my son who I resurrect. This is him. Uh, This is my son. You should listen to him. He is the one that I have prophesied about. There's the first prophecy. Look at verse 34. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Now, this is a prophecy right out of Isaiah 55.3. You can go back and read it in the Old Testament. This comes true when God raises Jesus from the dead. See, a dead Messiah could in no way have been God's holy plan for a holy and sure blessing to David and his offspring. What's that going to affect David? See, see, God said, David, there is one that's going to come who's going to reign forever from your lines. And by the way, when we teach David and Goliath, the story isn't about, hey, David, you're a great guy. You couldn't kill David with a thousand Goliaths because Christ was coming through his line. Amen? That's who David was. And yes, God, he trusted God, and he's kind of a hero to us, right? You know, and, and we watch him talk about in the final four or, or March Madness, this is David versus Goliath, you know, 15 versus one. You know, we hear that. Oh, hold on. No, no, no. You couldn't kill David with a thousand Goliaths because Jesus was coming through him. And he is the blessing. He is the sure blessing for David. And David needed Jesus to come to this earth. He put his faith that God was going to rescue him. He may not have known the name Jesus, but he knew God was going to bring something, some final lamb, something that would cleanse him. He knew God was going to take away his sin. And so this verse is not about David. It's about Jesus. God raised Jesus for David. And he raised him for you. Because if he doesn't get out of the grave, we're all going to hell. Isn't that wonderful? Verse number three, look at verse 35. Therefore, he also said in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That means he died. It's a nice way the Bible says he croaked. And was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Right? So that's why we know fell asleep is dead. He underwent decay. But... (laughs) He whom God raised did not undergo decay. So here, this third promise from the Old Testament is David's prophetic psalm of Psalm 16. And, and yes, David was going through some kind of massive struggle. We understand it in his context. He's speaking of the, the battle that he was going on, the, the affliction that was coming from his enemies, whether that was Saul or Philistines or what was coming after him. He felt the great pressure of that. But he was speaking beyond his time. It's like a, when you look at binoculars and you look close at something and then you focus a little farther back, there's another something behind that. That's often what the Psalms do. And here we see that. And David's body is, we know this was a fulfillment of Christ, not David, because David's body was in the grave. He died. There's no one going around, we believe in the resurrection of David. <laughs> No one had that. There was no, no history of that. And remember, Paul's saying this to the people, and they're going, yeah, he's right. He wasn't resurrected. What do we do with that psalm? This is a problem. 
who is this one who doesn't go under decay? See, they're wrestling with this, and he's using it to point them to Christ. There's no eyewitness of people saying, we saw Jesus, 500 people, and the disciples and apostles. There's no one running around saying, David's out of the grave, David's out of the grave. Yet, men put their life on the line because Christ was resurrected. They stood in front of the the killers of Christ, Peter and John, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, and said, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Totally bold. Would you do that? Knowing that they have the power to take you out, would you do that? See, when you believe in Christ is enough and he is all you need, God emboldens you to do that. And that's what happened to these men. And they spoke sharply. Third and last, look at these last couple of verses here. Wow, are they powerful. God resurrected Christ to prove your forgiveness. God resurrected Christ to prove your forgiveness. Look at this, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, still speaking to these Jews that are rejecting Jesus, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed, now look at this, from all things. I got that little word all circled in my Bible. Because I need the all. Do you? Do you need all? Or do you just need some things, maybe? I need all. I need all my sins forgiven. Past, present, and future. See, this is what Jesus did. And, and this, is, this is difficult. These Jews are hearing this and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. We sacrifice for these things. See, we, we kill lambs. And they're turtle doves and, and grain offerings. And then we come back and we do it again. 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 And then we live our lives in hope that we've kept all these things so that we can be part of the kingdom of God. Look at what he says in verse 39. From which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. See, brothers and sisters, the law condemns you, doesn't free you. We could go around this room and I could prove over and over and over not one of us has ever even kept the very first commandment, let alone the rest of the nine or the 365 ones that are there all through the law. The law was meant to show you you needed a savior. I don't put God first always in my life. There's no way. And so Christ comes and he fulfills what we could not fulfill. And Paul cries out in the end of the sermon that forgiveness is granted through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You can have this forgiveness that the law can't give you. That your good works and coming here on Easter and and being a good little bunny all week long or whatever you are, that can't save you. He's given the answer. He's given the answer to life, to eternity. It's Jesus. You can have justification. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says this, he who who was delivered over for our transgressions, very strong term about our sin, and was raised for our justification, so that you and I are declared righteous is what that means. It means that Jesus satisfied the demands of God's law. Christ fulfilled the law. You didn't. Christ did it. He was perfect. He fulfilled it perfectly and God judged him 
as though he committed our sins. Someone once said this, I wrote it down, it says, to be justified is to be just like you never sinned. Just like, to be justified is to be like you, like just like you never sinned. Does that help? You go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, Scott, I'm not gonna be start confessing things publicly here, but I know I've sinned. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't see that anymore. It's gone. Wipes your sin away, takes it to the deepest part of the world, deepest part of the oceans, east from the west, you know the story. He wipes out your sin. So he looks at you as justified. And so here's our Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the tree. He takes Scott's sins, imputes them to Christ, takes Christ's righteousness, his, his righteousness, and justifies me and puts those on me and says, you're declared righteous. It's as though you never sinned in my presence the way I look at you. That's forgiveness. You and I don't even treat each other nearly like that. We'll forgive one another, but we won't forget. He treats us as though we didn't sin. And when you die... And they say a lot of nice things about you, hopefully. When you come in the presence of God, if you're a Christian, he will say, come in, you're spotless, you are clean. There is no trace of sin because my son took everything away. You come right in here and you live with me for eternity, forever, because I don't see any sin on you because my son wiped it away. That's what Paul's offering to them. And you know the story, some believed and some mocked him and left. It happens every day. It's happening around the globe right now as missionaries are preaching in tribes, as missionaries are in metropolitan areas, as church after church is preaching this same historical doctrine of Jesus Christ alone. Many, many will reject him today. But some, some will believe. How about you? Is your faith in Jesus alone or you still riding that good work train? Hoping Scott's wrong up there. Worse is you're hoping the Bible's wrong. God's word, I can be wrong. Where are you? Is this gonna be your resurrection day? Father, thank you for this glorious day. We know that the world has colored it up with pastels. They have made it bright and bouncy and family and all those fun things, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that we could enjoy a day with family and fun. Oh, but it's not their day, though. This day belongs to your children. This is our Super Bowl. This is our Super Bowl of forgiveness, of salvation. This is where we revel year around in this day, Lord. That your son did not stay dead and decay, that he came out of that grave. And those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was died for our sins, that he was buried for us, and he rose again for us, are free, we are stain-free, we are forgiven, we are just like we never sinned. That's amazing, and it's humbling, Lord. We deserve the wages of death. The wages of sin is death. We deserve that, Lord. We do not deserve this grace, but that's how you operate. You love to give what we don't deserve. 
So Lord, we honor you and worship you and praise you today that you did what we could not do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for beating death. You took away its victory. You took away its stain. And now we long for eternity because all that you have done. May we serve you today, tomorrow, until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.